All right, go to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, that's where we're going to be today. Um, We're kind of in the second week of a two-part week. Last week, as we talked about the authority of Jesus, we're going to kind of wrap up um, that idea, and we're going to get all the way to the beginning of Mark chapter 3 today. So I'm going to start in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. And we're going to go all the way to 3.6. So we've got a lot to cover today. It says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to, him, said, said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm or to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. Well, we have been journeying through the book of Mark the last two weeks, and last week we saw that everyone has a box that they want to put Jesus in. The crowds see Jesus as this healer, Helper, The disciples are riding high on this healing ministry that Jesus has begun. And the Pharisees, which is where we're going today, they want to put Jesus in this rabbi rule-following box. And with every box that someone tries to put in, put him in, Jesus is going to reject it. And what we see in Mark chapters 1 and 2 is Jesus' self-identification. He is declaring to everyone who he is And what he is about. Last week he told his disciples, hey, I'm not just here to heal, but I'm here 
to preach. And today he's picking a fight. And what's that fight about? That fight is about himself, who he is. It's about his identity. He wants them to know who he really is. So let's jump right in chapter 2, starting in verse 13. It says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. He was teaching them, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him, and he reclined at table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Okay, so here's the question. What's the big deal with the tax collectors? You hear about this all the time, and you see it in the scriptures. The tax collectors are not liked. Well, this has gotten lost on us in 21st century. The popular understanding of why the tax collector was hated was because he was given permission to gather taxes for Rome from his fellow Jews. And instead of like taking $30 from you to give to Rome, he added another 20 on it, and he took that extra money and he pocketed some. So at minimum, he overtaxes you, and no one likes those people, right? Right? At most, he's a thief, right? So that's the simple understanding of a tax collector. The truth is that it goes way beyond that, okay? During this time in history, Rome rules the earth. In fact, the Roman government stretches all the way from England to India, if you can picture that. It's a massive piece of land, a huge empire, and thousands of years later, we have romanticized Rome for what they were, right? How many of you have seen the movie Gladiator? Love that movie, right? Or how many of you have heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome? And the evil to which was Rome has been completely lost on us. They were a ruthless empire that conquered the world by slaughtering thousands of men, women, and children. There are historical accounts of entire cities being wiped out because the people in that town would not bow down to Caesar as Lord and worship him as God. And the people in those cities, when they refused to worship a statue of Caesar, they would crucify those people along the Roman roads as a warning to anyone traveling, hey, don't mess with Rome, okay? They were violent, they were pagan, and they were evil. Now, if you are a government with a landmass from England to India, uh, India, you don't have an air force, right? So how do you police and sustain that? You don't have drones flying around. What do you need? You need a massive, massive land army. So here's the next question. How do you fund, supply, and train a massive, massive army? Taxes. And in the first century, tax collectors were Jews who paid Rome the right to gather taxes. And keep in mind, as a Jewish person, you stand on the shoulders of people like Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and David. You are part of a group of people that has been chosen and called by God to be a light to the nation. So for a Jewish man to purchase the right to tax their own people so that an invading government could continue to oppress you, and when I mean oppress, I don't mean diplomatically rule. I mean violently overtake. There is not a modern day equivalent to help me communicate the evil that is a tax collector. I mean, it would be like if a foreign country came in to the United States, right? They took over, they violently overthrew us, and your neighbor decided that you were going to join that foreign country by taking money from you and giving it to that government, to that country, so they could continue to oppress you, right? Would you have a problem with that? Yeah, most of us would, right? They did. 
they had a huge problem with it. It was seen, they were seen as extremely cruel. Here's what I want you to hear. That's the first group that Jesus calls and reclines with. That's the group that he sits with. There's a second group. They're called sinners. In our Western world, this kind of gets lost in the context. Uh, because in our way of understanding the world, and it's right, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're, we're all sinners. And that's correct. According to the Bible, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory, glory of God. But in this instance, the word sinners is a name for a socioeconomic group of people, right? These are people um, who are in a whole different class. They are born with illnesses or disease, like the bleeding woman or someone with leprosy. And because you have that illness or some kind of deformity, they believed that God was punishing you, either for your sin or your parents' sin. So a sinner could also be a Jewish person who has lived outside of the traditional law of God. Um, you, you see things like that all throughout the scriptures where there's groups of people that have been pushed out and rejected, and they're called Sinners and the religious folk have a problem with Jesus reclining with these people. So let's look at verse 16. It says, The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, when the scriptures say the scribes of the Pharisees, it's important to note that these guys are the Pharisees of the Pharisees. These are the top dogs, right? They are the best of the best. And they come up to Jesus and they say, what are you doing? You, you can't eat with them. They're sinners. And we have to understand here that just because Jesus was spending time with tax collectors and sinners doesn't mean that he was accepting their way of life. After all, he came preaching a gospel of what in Mark chapter 1? Repentance. But the point he is making with the Pharisees is essentially, you have misplaced the purpose of my gospel. You have misplaced the purpose of my gospel. See, you think the calling of God is moral righteousness, Pharisees. That's what you think. That if you do this and you don't do this, then you will be doing what's right. But what I'm telling you is that I have come for the one who knows that they are a sinner. And in their sin, they have come to me for healing, for the one who has acknowledged their brokenness, and they have come to me for restoration. That's the point he's making here. He wants these Pharisees to be able to acknowledge that their sin is no different than those that he is reclining with, those they have pushed to the outskirts of society, that we are all indeed sinners and we are all in need of healing. Another way to make the point here is to say that Jesus did not come for the prideful but he came for the humbly broken. Jesus did not come for the prideful, but he came for the humbly broken, and the humbly broken is who reclines with him and eats with him. That's the point here. And so all throughout this text, it's going to dial up with each moment that we go to. And so in verse 18, it says, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and said to him, why do John's disciples and disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So let's talk about fasting real quick. There were many reasons to fast in the Old Testament. There were moments where you would fast in repentance as a way of grieving your sin. There were moments that you would fast in mourning 
over sadness, over the death of someone. Like in Second Samuel 1, when Saul and Jonathan died in battle, they called for a fast. It could be a general expression of pleading with the Lord for help. Ezra 8.21 says, I proclaimed a fast at the river of Ahava, Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. And it was completely normal for a Jew to fast. It was a regular practice. The Pharisees fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. Even the disciples of John the Baptist are fasting. So the question is, and it's a completely reasonable question, Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? It's not a crazy question. Everyone else is doing it. So why aren't you? And we have to understand how big of a deal this is. This is offensive that Jesus and his disciples aren't fasting. Like it would have looked from the outside really bad. It, it's, it's, a, it's offensive. So it's a completely reasonable and appropriate question. And Jesus could have began a discussion about fasting with them. He could have used this as a teaching moment, but he doesn't. He says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And that is a crazy thing to say in this moment. It's completely unnecessary, right? He says, first, you don't fast at a wedding, which was the ultimate picture of celebration. It would be insanely rude to fast at a, at a wedding. It would have been offensive to that family that would have been putting on that wedding. The, the wedding was a party. You ate and you drank wine. It was a seven-day feast. Could you imagine doing a seven-day wedding? I wish we did, right? G Jesus is saying, this is not a time for mourning. It's not a time for pleading with the Lord for help. It's a time of celebration. And even today, if you go to a wedding, you expect to celebrate, right? Like, could you imagine, instead of getting a wedding invitation that's bright, full of color, full of joy, you got a black and white wedding invitation that had two tombstones on the front? And it said, join us as we mourn for the unending torment of Jackie and Jade. Right? Could you imagine? That would be weird, right? And then it said, there will be no meal provided. We're going to fast. I don't want to go to that wedding. I'm just telling you, right? And then Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom, which was bold. In fact, it was, it was, it was actually wildly offensive. Because in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, God was always the groom of Israel. Not even the Messiah, Yahweh, the Lord, was the groom of Israel. He says, you know why they aren't fasting? Because the groom's here. The groom's here. This is a time of celebration. He says, one day the groom will be taken away, and on that day they'll fast. He's, he's pointing forward. He's talking about his death, resurrection, and ascension. But he says, while the groom is here, it's a time of celebration. And then he gives two parables, one about a patch and one about uh, old wineskins and new wine. And the point that Jesus is making is the same in both of these examples. It's basically this. You have a way that you do things, and I don't fit, and I'm revamping the whole thing. So, okay, let me take a little side trail here. This would be a good, good point to tell you about the Pharisees, right? Because this is something that is widely misunderstood. When the modern Christian thinks about, or here's Pharisee, they typically think, okay, bad guy, right? The Pharisee equals bad guy. However, 
There were four sects to Judaism in the first country. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, who come into the story later, the Essenes, and the Zealots. And of those four, Jesus had the most in common with the Pharisees. So we have to understand how the Pharisees see this situation. The Pharisees did not cut themselves out of society like the Essenes did. The Essenes would live in caves. In caves. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls probably were from the Essenes. Um, they didn't compromise with Rome like the Sadducees did. Um, the Pharisees, like Jesus, were seeking the renewal of Israel. They wanted to see the will of God done in every area of a person's life. And they believed, like Jesus, in the resurrection of the dead, in angels and demons, and in the sovereignty of God. They actually had a lot in common with Jesus. So the Pharisees, when they interact with Jesus, they expect him to fit into their way of thinking. They expect him to fit into their way of life because they agreed on so much. So the Pharisees, when they interact with Jesus, they want them to fit into their little religious box because of all the other religious groups, they were most like him. So when Jesus talks about unshrunk patches and putting new wine into old wineskins, he's essentially telling them, hey, your way of doing things, you've completely missed the point. We're not as alike as you think. He's saying, I can't be an add-on to your religion because business as usual won't work. You think I'm going to fit into the way that you, you think things should go, but I don't fit. And so he's saying, I cannot be something that just conforms. Right? And to put this into our context, some of us today, we do this too. We have a garment patch Jesus. Something that we just try to add on to our structure. Right? Something's wrong with my life, so I'll just put a little Jesus on it, conform to it, and that will fix everything. I wish I would stop cussing. I guess I'll go to church next Sunday. Right? Or I can't believe I got that angry. I'll just read my Bible for an extra 10 minutes tomorrow. If you've got a hole in your life, you just put a little patch of Jesus over it and hope that that fix it, but that never works because that Jesus patch is going to tear away the minute that, there put some, that there's pressure on it. So here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm not just the patch that you could put on to fix something. I don't just conform to your way of life. He's saying, you want to understand who I am? My coming has changed everything. You don't just add me to your established structure. I have come to bring a whole new structure, and I define what that structure looks like. And for us, you can't just put a patch over some sin in your life. It says, I struggle with this, so I'm just going to do a little bit more Jesus here. No, he calls for full surrender, complete abandonment, saying, Jesus, you are my life. You define the structure here. I don't define where you fit into that structure. I submit to your structure. You're not something I add to my life. You are my life. And then verse 23, he dials it up even more. It says, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And then in verse 27, he says, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the disciples, they're walking on the Sabbath and they're picking heads of grain. And the Pharisees come up and they say, hey, you can't do that. That's harvesting. And harvesting is illegal on the Sabbath. So the law of God said, and back all the way back in the Ten Commandments, that you had to rest from work one day a week. But the religious leaders of the day had fenced in the Sabbath day with a bunch of rules and regulations. That the Sabbath became a day where you didn't do anything. It was about not doing stuff. There were 39 types of activity that you could not do on the Sabbath, including reaping grain, which is what they're being accused of here. So Jesus goes on to tell a story about David, and the whole point of the story is it's talking about a gray area in the law, that Jesus is essentially saying, you have interpreted this law this way, but what I'm telling you is it's not that simple. My interpretation is different. And the point is, you have a certain way that you've thought about this but I'm not bound by your interpretation of it. Jesus has the authority to determine what is and what isn't a Sabbath violation. And that argument in itself, the story that he tells about David, we don't have time to go all the way into it, but the story that he tells about David would have been enough to really tick them off. I mean, it would have made them mad. And if he would have just stopped there and they would have agreed to disagree, they would have been mad. But then he goes on in verse 27 and he says, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. And that was, if we're honest, if you're looking at the argument, an incredibly unnecessary thing for him to say in this moment. But here's the thing about Jesus, and we're going to see this as we go throughout the rest of this book. Jesus is not here to win an argument. He's not here to win an argument. He's here to self-identify. He is declaring who he is in this moment. That's why he says the Son of, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And in that one moment, he honors the original idea of the Sabbath, that there is a need for rest, while at the same time, he squashes a works-based mentality around participating in the Sabbath, that at the core idea of the Sabbath is the idea of a deep, deep rest. It's a near synonym for the word shalom, which means it's a state of wholeness and flourishing in every dimension of life. That's Genesis 1 and 2, where there is perfect peace between God, God's creation, and God's people. It's shalom. And so when Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, what he's saying is that he is the Sabbath. That he is the source of the deep rest we need. That he has come to completely change the way that they rest. Resting had become about not doing stuff. And he's saying, that doesn't cut it. That doesn't work. He's saying, no, I am your rest. These things that you do to make yourself feel extra holy, they don't cut it. Because if you want to find true rest, you can only find it in me. The one day a week rest that we take, it's just a taste of the deep divine rest that we really need. And Jesus is its source. And by calling himself Lord of the Sabbath, he is pointing to a deeper rest than the rest that even we today typically think of. Like, typically when we think of Sabbath, right, we think that's the day where I don't do anything, right? I'm tired. It's been a long week of work. For me, I played basketball on Friday, and so I just want to do nothing, right? I want to just sit on the couch and order DoorDash. But that's not the kind of rest that Jesus is talking about. 
you have to go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis 1 to understand this idea of a deep rest. That at the end of Genesis chapter 1, when God created the world, what does he do on the last day? He rests. He rests. Now, why did he rest? Does he get tired? No. He doesn't get tired, so how could he rest? Well, a different reason to rest is to be so satisfied with your work that you can leave it alone. And when God rested, he's saying, I am so satisfied in my work that I can rest. And what that means, if you dig a little deeper, is that he is so satisfied within himself as the Trinity that there is no need for anything else. There is rest for our God. When God finished the world, he said, it is good. And he rested. It's the idea of enjoyment and satisfaction. And Jesus says, this day, this is my day. You want to find deep rest, the shalom, it can only be found in me to think on, to meditate on, to worship your creator and be rested in me. Now, I want you to catch what Jesus is doing. Jesus is making it clear to the Pharisees. You may think that I am constrained by your rules and rituals, but I'm not. You may think that I should submit to your way of interpreting the law, but I don't. And he's making it crystal clear on who he thinks he is, and he's not leaving room for the understanding that he is simply just a teacher of the law. They saw him as someone that should fit into their system. You're a teacher of the law. You're a rabbi. And Jesus is saying, no. To say that the Sabbath was made for you and that, the, and that you are Lord of the Sabbath can only be interpreted in one of three ways. Either he's a liar, he's a crazy person, or he's telling the truth. That's the only interpretation that the Pharisees can walk away from. They got to pick one of those three things. So, which means you either have to hate him discount him and cast him aside, or you have to believe him. And Jesus isn't done yet, okay? In Mark 3, 1, it says he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So they're not even investigating anymore. They have made their mind up about Jesus. Now they're just looking for evidence. That's a theme that's going to continue the rest of the way. And Jesus has no interest in upholding their tradition. He has come to establish his authority in his kingdom. And the Pharisees had made the Sabbath day into a fearful day. I'm so afraid that I'm going to do something and break the law, and there is no rest in it at all. You ever felt like that? You're so afraid that you're going to do something wrong and God's going to get mad at you instead of just going to him to find rest, to receive from the Lord what you need. And they had completely missed the point of the Sabbath. And so he says in verse 3, he, says, he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm or to save life? He's basically saying, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do work? To do anything. <laughs> but they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And by healing this guy's hand, Jesus is reestablishing the purpose of the Sabbath. That the Sabbath is a day of restoration. You are meant to come today, the Sabbath, to gather with God's people, to be restored. To be renewed. And this moment, this moment seals the deal, okay? Verse 6 is one of the defining moments of the gospel of Mark. 
the lines have been drawn. It says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. The Herodians, as the name suggests, were the supporters of Herod. Herod was one of the nastiest and most corrupt guys um, in, in Israel. Herod was appointed by Rome to rule because in any country that Romans conquered, that's what they would do. They would set up rulers to watch over people. And so they appointed Herod to watch over the Jewish people. And so wherever Rome went, so went their way of life. And so the Herodians were proclaiming the way of Rome. They were disciples of Herod. So they were proclaiming the way they think about the gods, the way they think about sex, all that is Roman culture. And the Pharisees were the counterattack to the Herodians. They resisted the teachings of the Herodians and reminded people of the law. They reminded people to live according to the Hebrew scriptures. The Herodians were moving with the times, while the Pharisees were upholding traditional moral virtues. And the Pharisees believed their society was being overwhelmed with paganism, and they were calling for a return to traditional moral values. And these two groups had been longtime enemies of each other. They did not like each other, and they did not get along at all. But here, they have a common enemy. They both want to get rid of Jesus. He doesn't fit into our box, so he's got to go. And at this point, lines have been drawn. Jesus has made a stance clear. He has claimed that he has authority over people. He has claimed that he has authority over the scriptures. He has claimed that he has authority over the spiritual world, over the physical world. He has claimed that he has authority over sin. He has claimed that he has not come for the morally righteous, but for the humbly broken. He has claimed that he isn't just an add-on, but that following him requires complete abandonment and full restoration. He has claimed that the Sabbath day is his day, that he is Sabbath. He is the rest. And if someone had the audacity to claim all of those things, there can only be two responses, rejection or adoration. Either he's a liar, he's crazy, or he's telling the truth. The option that Jesus did not leave us with is mild amusement, which I think is where even I tend to put him sometimes. And I am mildly amused by him, and I'll just put a patch over my life. So let me ask us, if the claims that Jesus made are in fact true, what are the implications of that? Right? Or let me ask it this way. If his claim to have authority over your sin is true, what do you do with that sin that is choking the life out of you? Where do you take it? How do you think about it? If he really has authority over that sin, over the forgiveness of sins, how does that change the way that you fight your sin? If, if his claim to have authority uh, to not have come for the morally righteous, but to have come for the humbly broken is true, how do you pray? <clears throat> how does that have implications on how you pray to him? If his claim to be Lord of the Sabbath is true, how does that change the way that you rest? Where it's not just about not doing stuff, but it's about resting in him. And, and here's the deal. Many times when humanity is approached with this idea of submitting to authority, uh, we have something in us that wants to rebel, right? We're Americans, right? right? All of us, we want to rebel against something. All great movies have a great rebellion story. Gladiator, right? Mighty Ducks 2. 
No one wants to submit to Iceland, right? So we're going we're gonna to beat Iceland. But for many of us, when we think about the authority of Jesus, we also have some fear. We fear of what that would mean for our lives if we were truly to surrender everything. Our identity, our career, our families, our futures. There's some fear there in all of us, I think, of what would really happen if I really surrendered everything. Uh, there was a theologian, you may have heard of him, uh, called C.S. Lewis. His name is C.S. Lewis. Um, some of you may not have heard of him, and, and so I'm glad to expose you to him. Uh, but when he became a Christian, he wrote an allegory of his journey called The Pilgrim's Recess. Anybody ever heard of it? So it was a, kind of meant to be a follow-up to Pilgrim's Progress. Um, but if you don't know anything about C.S. Lewis, he was an atheist that became a Christian. He was a brilliant guy. He's had a lot of influence over the history of Christianity. And the allegory, I don't even recommend reading it, actually, because it's a rough read, okay? Um, he cusses in it, and it's just, like, gloomy and kind of dark. And, in fact, uh, in the third edition, so years later, he would write an apology in the foreword of the book. He was basically like, I'm sorry, dudes, I was in a place, okay? My bad. And the way he describes his conversion in the book is interesting. His character is in the dark, it's raining, and he's on a cliff hugging the wall. And there's someone with a sword pushing him towards the church because the whole premise of the book was a guy named John who traveled the world looking for his heart's desire and he can't find his heart's desire anywhere. And so this guy with the sword is saying, you want to fight your, find your heart's desire, it's in the church. And his character, John, is literally hugging the, wall, the cliff saying, no, I don't want to go there. C.S. Lewis did not want to be a Christian. He did not want to be a Christian. And years later, C.S. Lewis would write an autobiography. Does anybody know what that autobiography was called? Surprised by joy. Surprised by joy. So there's something in us that wants to rebel against Christ, that wants, us, wants to run away from Christ. But saint after saint after saint after saint, when you sit at the feet of Jesus Christ, we are surprised by joy because there's something about him that's just better, better than anything else. He's got authority over sin, authority over sickness, authority over everything in this world, and that's good news for us because there's nothing that's better than him. And so when we sit at the feet of Christ, we find rest, we find hope, and we find joy in his authority. 